We have now released issue three of the New Thinking Aloud magazine. Download it for free at newthinkingaloud.org. New Thinking Aloud is a non-profit endeavor. Your contributions to the New Thinking Aloud Foundation make a meaningful difference in our ability to produce new videos. Thinking Aloud Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is group intention and psychokinesis. My guest is Lynn McTaggart, who is an award-winning journalist and investigator of intention experiments. She is author of seven books, including The Field, The Quest for the Secret Force of the Universe, The Intention Experiment, Using Your Thoughts to Change Your Life and the World, The Bond, How to Fix Your Falling Down World, and her most recent book, The Power of Eight, Harnessing the Miraculous Energies of a Small Group to Heal Others, Your Life and the World. Lynn is located in London, England. Now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Lynn. It is a wonderful experience to have you with us on New Thinking Aloud today. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for asking. You have a background as an investigator in journalism, and for many years you have been conducting experiments looking into the power of intention and specifically groups of people. And you have been getting some really fascinating results and in several cases, statistically significant results. How have you moved from being a journalist to this field in the field? <laughs> I got hijacked. That's probably the way to put it. I was minding my own business when I came across very good studies of things like spiritual healing. And they were good scientific studies I was doing for my then newsletter, now magazine, What Doctors Don't Tell You. And I kept thinking to myself, wait a minute, if we can have a thought and send it to make somebody better, that completely derails everything we think about how the world works. So I wanted to find out about that. And I started talking to scientists, mainly scientists working at prestigious universities like Princeton, Penn State, University of California, all working in consciousness research. And they showed me evidence they were working on that essentially compounded into a completely new science, a new world, a new view of the world. Once I finished that book, which was The Field, and that was published in 2001, I was hooked, but also I was left with some unfinished business. And that unfinished business was the scientific evidence that some had demonstrated that thoughts are an actual something with the capacity to change physical matter. So as you say, I started out life as an investigative reporter. I was doing stories to try to put bad guys in jail with hidden tape recorders and all sorts of things. So I was used to heavy investigating. I was also used to being skeptical about stuff until it's proven. And at that time, I thought to myself, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about just very subtle effects like shifting a quantum particle when we're saying thoughts affect things out there? Or are we talking about curing cancer with our thoughts? Are we talking about flying up in the air with our thoughts or stopping a train? So I wanted to test that. And I thought to myself, I have lots of readers from the field, which was in 30 languages. And I also know a lot of these great scientists working in consciousness research. So if I put them together, I'd have the biggest global laboratory in the world. And that's when I started. I was also interested, as you say, in what happens when lots of people are thinking the same thought at the same time. So that became a cornerstone of the intention experiment, where we would get people together, usually my audience from around the world or a specific audience, if I was speaking somewhere, we'd send an intention to a target that was going to be measured or had been created 
by one of these scientists at University of Arizona or Princeton, Penn State, University of California, etc. And then we'd measure it. And as you say, I mean, we've run 40 of them to date. 36 have shown measurable, positive, mostly significant effects. Everything from trying to make seeds grow faster to purifying water to lowering violence in war-torn or violent areas to healing someone with post-traumatic stress disorder. And other than four, all 40 have shown measurable responses. These have been controlled experiments using all kinds of data or setting up a, a controlled experiment in a laboratory. So we've demonstrated it over and over and over again. There's even a history of the Transcendental Meditation Organization having conducted research with group meditators when they are in meditation that they were also able to reduce violence. And I think that they said something about 1% of if 1% of the population were meditating, that this was could be statistically significant. And it, then if the square root of transcendental meditators who were focusing on cities, which is an advanced form of meditation, that it was even more significant. Have you found that you've built on that research and kind of echoed some of those findings? Well, ours were very different things. But I certainly was inspired by the TM re research because I saw that a critical mass of, re of meditators seemed to make the crime rate grow, uh, go down. They had studies of 48 cities. They found when there were a certain number of meditators in that city, it would calm the crime rate. But the difference is with meditators, they are doing something passive. They are just uh, going into a quiet state. and of no thought. What I was thinking of was something different, which was all getting people together with a very focused thought and having them all think the same thought at the same time. That's what interested me. Can we deliberately change something rather than a passive exercise? We also have done brainwave studies on our power of eight groups, our small groups of group intention. And we found that the brainwave signatures of people doing that look completely different from the brainwave signatures of meditators. Meditators have increases in certain brainwaves, alpha brainwaves, the brainwaves of someone in light meditation or dreaming. Ours were a turning off of brainwaves. Instead of an increase, we had a decrease in the parts of the brain that make us feel separate like the parietal lobes. They sit back here and they tell us what's me and what's not me. They help us navigate through space. They were dialed way down and so were the parts of the brain like the right frontal lobes involved with worry, doubt, and negativity, also dialed way down. This was a study done by a team of neuroscientists at Life University, the largest and most prestigious chiropractic university in the world. So we saw that our effects, brainwave effects, are very different from meditation. So it's a very different exercise. Let's start with your germination study where you were working with plants or seeds, actually. I think you did both. And I think for our audience, could you just kind of share with us a little bit about how you did that study. I believe it was with Gary Schwartz out of the University of Arizona, because people really do wonder, can we really affect the physical world with our thoughts? So what did you discover? This was a great experiment that we did back in 2007. Dr. Schwartz, a noted psychologist who has his own consciousness lab at the University of Arizona, worked with his team, and they prepared four sets of seeds, of 30 seeds each. They photographed those seeds, labeling them A, B, C, or D, sent me the photos, and I decided to do this experiment in front of different audiences and then one time in, in the, in, on the internet with my global audience. So the first stop with a speaking tour was in Sydney, Australia. So I had an audience of about 700. 
I showed them the four photographs and said, please choose one. We had someone in the audience randomly choose one set. Let's say it's seeds A. I then proceeded to do the experiment and had the, had the audience focus on seeds A. I did not tell the scientists before or afterward which, which seeds we'd sent intention to. But I told them the study was done, that our intention was done. That was their cue to plant the seeds. So they did, and then they measured the results, how high the seedlings were four days later. Once they were done measuring, I unblinded the study. At that point, I told them, well, it was seeds A. And lo and behold, the seeds that had been sent in tension grew significantly higher than the controls. I ran that experiment five more times in front of different sized audiences, a, a workshop in Rhinebeck, New York, a uh, in front of a bunch of healing touch practitioners, 600 or so in South Carolina, then an audience in Dallas, Texas, an audience in LA, and then my internet audience from around the world. Every single time the seed sent intention grew significantly higher than the controls. Now, let's unpack the study for a moment. Let's take the first one. And this was every single one. We did the same thing. We were in Sydney, Australia. The seeds were in Tucson, Arizona, 8,000 miles away. Plus, I didn't have the audience send intention to the seeds themselves. They were sending intention to a photo of the seeds. They were sending intention to a symbolic representation of the seeds. Nevertheless, we had an effect. So that gave me a great deal of information about how group intention essentially creates what I like to call a psychic internet. But we somehow all connect together. And I certainly saw that with my intention experiments because very quickly people would start talking about feeling extraordinary heat when they were taking part or feeling super energy going up and down their body or crying uncontrollably or saying they felt like they were in a tractor beam in Star Trek. And I want to remind you in most instances, the intention experiments were conducted as we're doing this in interview now, we're sitting in front of our separate computer screens and I would have something on my website or some other platform and ask my audience to come onto that platform all at the same time and send intention all at the same moment. And yet we were all experiencing these extraordinary energy um, feelings and even though we were separate, somehow we had made some extraordinary connection. Yeah. Well, I want to talk a little bit more about a few more of your experiments, but since we're on the topic, what do you think is happening? I mean, of course, there's entanglement. Uh, what, what kind of conclusions have you come to? Well, I think we do have a human entanglement. You know, entanglement has been thought to be the province of the tiny. It's, it, occurs when two subatomic particles have been in contact. If they've been once in contact and they're separated, essentially like twins that are separated at birth, they continue to know about and affect each other forever. So think of it as two twins that, you know, a set of twins that are separated at birth, one's in New York, one's in London. Nevertheless, they grow up both loving the color blue, both marrying somebody called James, and when one falls down and breaks her leg in Vail, Colorado, the other one falls down and breaks her leg, even though she's sitting in Starbucks and drinking a cup of coffee. So that's what entanglement is. And we see that it's not just the province of the tiny. There is entanglement involved in the process of photosynthesis. They've discovered at the University of California, Berkeley, they found that that things go on in there in the crucible of where the, the change from taking sunlight and creating oxygen as, as plants do takes place via a quantum process. So we're seeing more and more that quantum effects occur in the world at large. And I think this is an example of it, of 
some strange connection that we all create coming on and holding that same thought at the same time. You also did a study with a leaf with light and found that your intenders were also able to produce results. Absolutely. These were our early experiments. We, Dr. Schwartz had convinced me that we have to start small. You know, I, I said, okay, let's cure cancer with our thoughts. And he said, let's start with a leaf. And when we've done that, we'll move on to seeds. So what he was saying is we have to take baby steps. That was our very first experiment. And it was in front of an audience again, an audience of about 800, 800. And we sent intention just to change the light emissions of a leaf. All living things emit a tiny current of light. They're called biophoton emissions. And the University of Arizona had sophisticated equipment that could measure any changes in light, essentially photo by photon by photon. So we did that. We had an effect. And Dr. Schwartz said he thought that the leaf, which was the control leaf, almost looked like it had less light than usual. So that was really kind of an amazing first experiment because it gave us some information. First of all, that it works. This remote group intention seems to have an effect. And that effect can be large. But we, we did a lot of initial types of experiments, not just with the University of Arizona, but with Penn State and other places looking at water and trying to affect things like water besides plants. So we were doing all of these preliminary experiments, about 12 in all, that were just trying to take baby step after baby step to learn what we were doing. And most of the water experiments worked too. We were trying to purify water, change its alkalinity, make it more alkaline. And we even tried making it more acidic just to see if we could go in the opposite direction. And we had an effect there too. Yeah, I think that study was called turning water into wine. <laughs> we did that because it was near Christmas. So we just wanted to see, that was just a playful experiment to see if we could move down in the pH scale, which is less, that is actually less pure when it's more acidic, the water. But we were just seeing, does our intention go either way? What I found fascinating with your early experiments is that when you say that there was another leaf present and it seemed to have less light, it seems to indicate possibly that maybe that leaf felt bad that it wasn't also getting that supercharged <laughs> energy. And then also those seeds, some of the seeds around the ones that you were targeting also seemed to grow at a more increased rate as well. Well, I think it was the any seeds that we, we had any seeds getting some sort of intention or even having some sort of scattergun effect would have grown higher. So there were some really interesting elements of the experiments that we were learning bit by bit. What is group intention? What is remote intention? How far can you take it? And in your studies, you have done them in person with large, small and large groups. You've also worked with people remotely how we are. And it sounds like you discovered that you got similar results, no matter if you were distant or in the same location. Absolutely. Like the seed experiment where we, we experimented with both types of situations. And it also didn't matter how large the group was or how small. You know, I had thousands of people over the internet and I had a hundred people at a workshop. So it didn't matter what seemed to be the important element was a group of any size and a common intention. So that was remarkable as far as I could see that remote intention worked just as well as being in the room. The Power of Eight, which is the title of your most recent book, is also what you have come to as far as some of the main groups you're now working with. In fact, you call them the Power of Eight groups. So are you suggesting then that the 
number eight seems to sort of be a sweet spot. I also know in your book you describe kind of between six to 12 people that seems necessary for being able to get these results. I think a group of any small size. I always say that eight is a Goldilocks number. We were just calling it. I was thinking about what am I going to do to try to scale down these intention experiments back in 2008. And I was just talking it over with my husband one night and said, or one day, I think it was in our office. And I said, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll put them in groups of eight or so and have them send intention to somebody with a health challenge in their group. And he said, I love it. The power of eight. Um, He's a good headline writer and a good journalist as well. So I, that's how it got started. That was the name, but we didn't expect it to have healing effects. But the first time we did it, which was in a workshop in Chicago, we had put people into groups, had them send healing intention, didn't expect much besides a feel good effect, like getting your back massaged. But the next day, when everybody came back to, to the second day of the workshop, we had the people who had got intention stand up and talk about their experiences. And they said things like this. I have bad arthritis in one knee and I'd seen this woman limping in and she said, and I'm walking normally today. And someone else said, I have depression usually and it feels lifted today. Someone else said, I have bad IBS and I feel normal. My gut is normal today. And somebody else, I have cataracts and they're 80% better. So we didn't know what to make of this. We were completely freaked out by it. And I even thought this must be a placebo effect, but I started doing it over and over and over again. And now thousands and thousands of times looking at it, studying it, trying to figure out what is this. And, and I've seen extraordinary effects, thousands of healings. I've seen two people get up out of wheelchairs, one paralyzed, the other one with multiple sclerosis. I've seen stage four cancer healed. I had a woman in a workshop of mine in a retreat of mine a year ago who had was given three months to live. She had disseminated melanoma and they did one power beat group and it was so deep and healing that she came out of it saying, I am healed. And it was true. She went home. She had some other alternative treatments, but nothing like chemo or radiotherapy. And she had had them before too. And they didn't seem to be making much difference. But a few months after that, her doctors pronounced her completely free of cancer. So I've seen loads of this. I've seen genetic diseases um, healed. A woman with a genetic liver disease um, and an enlarged spleen and a liver that was full of scarring fibrosis. One power of a group. And she feel, felt this extraordinary energy in her body. Um, and felt something had really changed. And when she went back to her consultants, they both said, well, your spleen's a normal size and all the fibrosis is gone. So we've seen this over and over again. Of course, it's not everybody who undergoes this, but there are enough extraordinary miracle situations, not only in health, but in career, um, relationships, money, finances, life purpose, to say something something amazing is going on. Have you compared a single energy healer, maybe a Reiki, Qigong, or healing touch practitioner to your studies and the effects that maybe one person is able to provide somebody? Because I'm wondering if maybe the effect is larger if it's a group versus one individual bringing those positive intentions or working with what some people refer to as energy. Well, first of all, I mean, Reiki healers have a certain amount of, you know, success. They're very good. What we have seen is a group effect is somehow a supersizer. It seems to affect people. And when people do individual intentions, because comparing power of eight groups to Reiki healing would be like comparing apples and oranges. They're two completely different modalities. But if I compared an individual doing intention to a group doing intention, that might be something. And over and over again, I do hear from students of mine that when they've tried this by themselves, it doesn't work anywhere near as well as when people are doing it in a group. 
many people who are very practiced meditators will say, I've tried to do this by myself and it doesn't work as well. There's something about the group. And that was one reason why it took me 10 years to have the courage to publish the book, The Power of Eight. I was first doing this in 2008 and finally published that book in 2018. And the reason was because I am a journalist at heart, I had to understand why this works. I'm watching healings all over the place and I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm not a healer. I'm not doing this. What is this? What is going on? And so I had to look at it from all kinds of angles to try to see what is the power of the power of eight. Where is it coming from? And what conclusions have you come to? I think there's several things that go on with the Power of Eight group. Number one, there is intention. No question, thoughts are things that affect other things. And the group seems to supersize that. So group intention has an effect. There is also the effect of a group. group groups, as the psychologist Emile Durkheim said, the French psychologist, Groups create a collective effervescence. We all feel better and good and get energized in a group. There was that. The, a big piece of this is altruism. Because seven-eighths of the time, when you're doing group intention in a power of eight group, you're intending for someone else. And what I have discovered is intention in a group has a mirror effect. Even if you are a sender sending intention to someone else, you receive something back and oftentimes you yourself are healed. Many people in my groups, in my courses who were stuck, I would invariably say, get off of yourself. Start intending for someone else and see what happens. And invariably, they shift, they heal, something changes in their lives. I had one woman who couldn't get a book done. She was trying to write a book on body healing trauma. She was a bodywork practitioner, couldn't get anything done, was stuck, terrified of marketing, all of that. I, I Everybody was intending for her, nothing was happening. So I said, finally, Lisa, get off of yourself. Intend for somebody in your group who's got a health challenge. And so she intended for, actually for a Diana who had a financial challenge. And lo and behold, the next week, she is compelled to go into a shop. She didn't even need anything from in her town. And she goes up in there and she bumps into a woman she had been introduced to at some point, very briefly. And they started chatting and it turns out this woman is a book coach. And when she hears of Lisa's project and the fact that she wasn't getting it anywhere, she had gone through several editors, nothing was happening, she offered to coach her through the whole process. That seems to happen over and over and over. And there's also a physical thing that goes on with people who help other people. Altruism is like a bulletproof vest. People who do things for other people live longer, healthier, happier lives. It's extraordinary. If you look at the science as I have, you see that when you do something for someone else, even as a volunteer, you will have far less illness than anyone else. You will live far longer. You'll be far happier. And even helping someone with the same illness as you, you're more likely to get better. So there's all kinds of issues like that. And that really strikes at the heart of the self-help movement, doesn't it? Because self-help movement is all about focused on me, 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 healing self, healing self. And I have found that the way to heal self is other help, not self-help. And oftentimes when we do get off of ourselves and start helping other people, our life starts to work. And as I say, I've seen this loads of times, people getting healed. A guy I knew, Wes Chapman, who was, he had been part of the Vietnam War. He had gone to university with the thought of becoming a biochemist or a doctor, bright guy. And he was called up to 
uh, participate in the Vietnam War in the very last year of the war, when there were no more student deferments. He came out of the war so traumatized that he left university and his life continued in a terrible downward spiral. He even met the love of his life, but that marriage didn't last long because she developed a fast growing cancer. He lost her and he was totally indebted from the meta, the extraordinary medical costs. So he ended up losing his house too. And the story was so sad that by the time I met him at 65, he had got to the point of thinking, what's the use? So I got him involved in one power of eight group. He was a volunteer in one group I was doing at a, uh, a church. He wanted to be the receiver, but there was a woman in the group with stage four cancer. So even though he suffered for years from depression, he decided she should be the more fitting subject. He comes home. He has this extraordinary epiphany during a dream where it is almost like a vision, he said, where he met his 19-year-old self who somehow communicated to him that there's still time. And he woke up like Scrooge on Christmas. Suddenly he had been avoiding people and suddenly he's saying, hi, how are you? Wanting to talk to people, getting involved in his church, getting involved in exercise, starts an exercise regime, starts writing, starts taking courses, totally new person. One power of eight group, sending intention to somebody else. And I see that over and over. So all of that is part of why it works so well. But there's another element to it, and that is a sense of oneness. You know, we all talk about, and lots of people ask me, how do you enter the field? And I say, you don't have to enter the field. You are the field. All of our subatomic particles are part of this giant quantum field. But you don't experience life like that. You experience life as separate. You experience life as a lonely person on a lonely planet in a lonely universe. And here is a moment where, as we've demonstrated with our brainwave studies, the parts of the brain that make us feel separate are turned off. And we feel a sense of extraordinary oneness. The brainwave signatures we recorded were nothing like meditation, as I mentioned, but they were identical, virtually identical, to the studies conducted by the University of Pennsylvania, neuroscientist Dr. Andrew Newberg conducting them, of Buddhist monks during ecstatic prayer and Sufi masters during chanting. So these were people in a state of ecstatic oneness. And that's what my people experience over and over and over again, a sense of oneness. And that is one of the big secret sauces of why this stuff works. People report an altered state, essentially, a mystical state. And we know from other experiences and modalities that when you can reach a spiritual state, that is a major change agent. It does sound like prayer that has been practiced for millennia. What have you found about, I mean, you just mentioned a little bit now, but have you found it to be essentially similar to how different religions have practiced over the years with prayer? That sounds like a very good question. It's very different from prayer. Prayer essentially is a supplication to a higher being. Thy will be done. God, you help me. God, you help me decide. With this, this intention, first of all, is secular. I want everybody to come in. I don't want certain religions uh, to be feel they're welcome and some not. This is for everyone. But also, it's a very specific request to the universe. One of the things we discovered in many of our intention experiments, and the few that didn't work, uh, some of them did not work. And one of the reasons, and there were four of them out of 40, that's it. But one of the reasons was we learned we weren't specific enough. When we tried to just send love to water. That didn't work. When we said we want to move it by at least one pH, that worked. 
So I think it's a very specific request. That's what makes it different. Also, it's the whole idea of a group effect. Now, I, when I went back and I've recounted in The Power of Eight that I studied some of the Bible and I looked at the Acts and found that Jesus talked over and over again about prayer in a group. Be in a group and you will be healed. Never pray alone, he told the apostles. Pray in a group and you will heal and you will be healed. And so he was also advocating something like this. So I don't think that group, a group situation is wholly unique, but I think putting it together, what I've tried to do is learn each time what's working, what isn't working. And what seems to be the case is the group effect being highly specific, those kinds of things, connecting as one, those kinds of things seem to be super powerful. Can you share a little bit more about some of your other experiments? Absolutely. Once we got done with seeds and leaves, I was getting a little bored by all of that and said, let's do something huge. So we, in 2008, we did our first peace intention experiment for Sri Lanka, uh, which had been going through a 25-year war. And it was extraordinary because we found that we ran it for 10 minutes for eight days. So 10 minutes a day for eight days. And we discovered afterward, working with a statistician called Dr. Jessica Utz, a professor of statistics at the University of California, that violence had actually gone up greatly during our week of intention, but then plummeted. And more interestingly, we discovered that the government, and this was the reason for increased violence, had won some decisive battles during just the week of our intention that completely turned around the course of the war. And with about six months later, it was over. So, of course, we said to ourselves, did we do that? But that was interesting. But more interesting to me, because it was the first time I started surveying our participants, was what was happening to them. They were reporting on my survey that their lives had become more peaceful. They were getting along better with their partners. They made up with estranged children. Their parents, whom they'd been estranged from, contacted them after 20 years of not speaking. They were getting along better with coworkers and boss. All of that went on and on. And about 40% to 50% said, I'm more in love with everyone I come in contact with. So I was blown away by this. I went, wow, their lives are mirroring what they're intending for. And I started doing that over and over again, ran loads of peace intention experiments and found this every time. Plus I found that about a third of participants reported healings, improvements in medical conditions, or sometimes full outright healings. So again, it was bizarre to me. Wow, getting involved in this altruistic act is healing. So then I started playing around with bringing um, polarized groups together. So I did this with the 10th anniversary of 9-11. I brought Arabs and Americans together to do an intention to lower violence in two provinces in Afghanistan. While we did have successful results, a big lowering of violence in those two provinces, according to NATO data, the more interesting thing to me was what was going on on my Facebook and instant messengering pages. Because I had had, I'd recruited a lot of Arabs via a guy called Salah al-Rashid, Dr. Salah al-Rashid. It's like the Deepak of the Middle East. And he brought all of his Arab followers to do this intention with us and Americans and other Westerners. And I noticed on my Facebook and instant messengering pages, they were sending love to each other. They were saying, your God is my God. And I started thinking, wow, getting involved with this altruistic act allows the heart to leap across the fence. And probably more germane to what's going on in the moment in the Middle East, in 2017, late 2017, I ran an experiment on some special equipment 
where we could put cameras in eight Arab conference rooms in eight Arab different Arab cities. And the ninth camera was placed in an audience of Israeli Jews. And once again, we were doing an intention to lower violence in Jerusalem, which was suffering from violence at the time. And we discovered that while it, we appeared to have some sort of effect, the more interesting thing was what was happening right in front of me among these disparate groups. I had to broker this whole experiment because neither side was speaking to the other. They were hated enemies. So because of this equipment, I could call on each place, each camera, essentially. So in each conference room or auditorium, and they could answer and everybody else would hear them too and could speak back. So I, after the experiment, I started asking, okay, tell us how that was. And they were pouring out love for the other side. Arabs were saying, your God is my God. And the Israelis were saying to the Arabs, we love you, brothers and sisters. It's going on and on like this. And extraordinary situations. I looked up why this might be afterward and spoke to a guy called Dr. Dacker Keltner, who is a psychologist at the University of California at Berkeley. And he had run an experiment with two groups of students, volunteers. One group were shown pictures of the world's victims, like starving children. The other group were shown pictures of uh, other students or the Berkeley campus or even um, uh, uh, them Berkeley fighting their their football team fighting uh, their biggest rivals Stanford University, and then Dacker Keltner showed them some other pictures of different types of groups. The first group, the ones that had seen the world's victims, felt connected to people not like them. If they were Democrats, Republicans, or the homeless, or prisoners. They were, their hearts had opened, whereas the ones just shown pictures designed to elicit pride in who they were, were more connected with the people they would become, doctors, lawyers, financiers, etc. So that was evident, according to Keltner, that what happens when we connect with something altruistic is it really has a huge effect on the vagus nerve. The longest nerve in the body that essentially controls our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. And also the third layer of it are feelings of safety and connection. When we do something altruistic, it opens that third channel and we feel, we feel more connected to people even not like us. So I think that was the real situation here. Are you willing to share a little bit about some of the methodology in your experiments, how you guided people to send an intention to a plant or another person or to a community? There are 13 keys to intention mastery that I teach. So I can't really talk about all of those in a, in a, uh, a show like this, but I can give you a couple of ideas. And one is, being specific, as I mentioned before. We never did intentions, make these plants grow faster. We would say our intention is for seeds A to grow at least four centimeters by the fourth day of growing or something like that. So we'd be very specific. And we'd also be sending from the heart. So it wouldn't be a head situation, it would be a heart situation. And I also do a variety of things to get people connected, but it happens very quickly. I know some other teachers spend a long time getting people to focus together, meditate together, etc. With the work I do, it, it happens in, a, in an instant, as it did with that brainwave study. We were using student volunteers, none of whom had ever done Power of Eight before, Nobody had done even meditation, and yet they were able to be transported into this totally different brain state in a minute or two. You've mentioned many components to your research that have been really eye-opening, jaw-dropping. What has really surprised you the most, and where are you going now with your investigations? 
I think what surprised me the most was the mirror effect. I'd done so many studies on outcomes, but what was staring me in the face from very early on was sometimes the outcome on on the target, and I mean, we've run peace intention experiments, lowering violence in Sri Lanka, and also places like St. Louis, Missouri, officially the most violent place in America. And it turned out that the just the section of St. Louis, Missouri, we sent intention to, had a drop in crime rate by 43%, compared to all the neighborhoods around it and St. Louis as a whole, where violence continued on its usual upward trajectory, our intention lowered it and bucked its own trend. So that was amazing, but again, is eclipsed, I think, by the effect on participants. So I've seen so much where people have changed their lives, been healed, opened their hearts. And when you think about the ripple effect of that, with thousands of people taking part with any intention experiment. That is an enormous effect that can have an ongoing effect. So I think for me, the mirror effect, whether it's in a power of eight group or whether it's in an intention experiment, is the big mind blower. Well, it really shows that we need each other and love really maybe is the greatest healer. Absolutely. Love is the greatest healer. And it heals. I've seen that with trauma. You've asked where I'm going with it. I've been doing a lot of intention out of time, healing past, designing future. Um, and I see huge healing of trauma. And part of what really heals people is the love of a group and the connection of a power of eight group. During COVID, it was quite interesting because I teach classes, I teach year-long classes in intention mastery, where I not only teach, but I put people into groups. We assign them into groups in their time zone and preferred meeting times. And then they meet for a year under my guidance and clinics, etc. But they need to meet once a week, at least for an hour. And it was so interesting. One of the people, Jerry, joined one year during lockdown. And he loved it so much. It was, he felt so connected that he joined the next master class just to get another group. And he said, when I talked to him at the end, he said, well, the greatest thing for me was love, compassion. I now know what love is. Getting it even through the airwaves. I've done better in the COVID season than I've done at any time in my life. So I think the love and connection is the biggest secret sauce, because we don't get that. We are more isolated than ever. That was exacerbated by COVID. And that is probably the worst thing you could do for human beings. We need to belong almost more than we need to eat. And so the sense of belonging and a bunch of people who've got your back and are sending you selfless intention to, to heal your life, that is extraordinarily strengthening. Well, absolutely fascinating, Lynn, and thank you so much for your incredible contributions. Is there anything else you want to share today about group intention and psychokinesis? Well, I think that people should understand that power of eight groups don't just heal your body. They heal your life. I've had people like Joy, who hadn't had a partner for many years, and in her power of eight group, she said, I'd like to welcome love into my life. So they do an intention for her and open up her heart to love, she said. They do an intention for her. And lo and behold, this is during lockdown. She's in Australia. She gets a call from a boyfriend of 35 years ago. They start having a conversation and a connection. And the upshot is he goes to Australia. He goes through the quarantine. They're living together. Love of her life. And we've seen that. We've seen people start their businesses or change and get their dream job or have an ideal divorce as Andy Spiros did or get her. And she also got a dream job after focusing on somebody else. 
once she stopped focusing on herself and having her group focus on someone else and on and on people healing all kinds of relationships with their children with their parents etc so i've seen people even create a brand new life for themselves find new life purpose but i see that it's all rejuvenating and for people who put in the effort to meet week after week after week those are the people who experience vast majority of them experience amazing change a story that stood out to me being an occupational therapist was a young man who had sustained many injuries and healed i think it was like 40 some percent or much more quickly than the doctors had anticipated through your power of eight group yeah this was luke who was 15 at the time and in a fit of adolescent peak and despair after breaking up with his first serious girlfriend he threw himself off a 40-foot structure onto hard ground and luke had broken every bone in his body and he had had nerve damage and brain damage and the doctors were pretty sure he wasn't going to live and so our groups we heard that from his stepfather he he contacted me and said can you do anything so i had all my groups doing intention for luke on successive sundays while his stepfather kept a running commentary of exactly what happened to luke right after our intentions and we saw with each intention luke got vastly better he he responded to each intention and as you say he got out of the hospital in record time he lived he's a normal now 20 year old i guess but here was the interesting piece of it it had nothing to do with belief because as a bolshi 15 year old luke believed that his he thought his parents belief in the power of intention was pretty stupid so i found that really fascinating even without believing he just went along with it and he had amazing amazing effect lynn thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today it's a real pleasure to have you join us and i hope you can come back as a guest again on new thinking aloud i would love to thank you so much and for those of you listening or watching thank you for being with us you are the reason that we are here Imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is Is There Life After Death? 